What we want to uh, do this evening is have a uh, little, little bit of a short review and some discussion, talk about the condition of the church after the Edict of Milan, some church councils, some of the church fathers, what was going on with the Roman Empire, and then something new happened, the barbarians. Sound good, Ron? Okay, Ron and Jackie came just to hear about barbarians. Okay, uh, by way of review, what are the institutions that God has brought about for us human beings? Marriage and family, yes. And government, good. Keep going, we have two more. The church, three. And what was it? Israel, Israel. right, absolutely. Now, as I, we went over the, some of that, we talked about it a little bit in depth, but you take those four institutions, some when you start talking about the institutions that God has placed in man, another one is commerce. Because God has created the human environment and wants it to be taken care of in a stewardship manner. If you have the spiritual gift of giving, what I'm talking about will probably be resonating with you in particular. Okay? So, we won't argue whether there's a fifth institution of commerce or not, but just, just be aware of that. Okay, what is characteristic of all four, let's call it four for this evening, what is characteristic of all four of God's institutions among mankind? All four of these institutions, Satan wants to destroy. Okay? Are you consciously aware that Satan wants to destroy your family, your government, Israel, and the church? Think about it. So, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, what we wrestle with, what we're dealing with, we cannot see. It is warfare in heavenly places. We'll go on. But any questions about that? As we look at church history, and we've tried to make the point that, yes, shortly after the church got started, there began to be sporadic and intense persecution against the church to stamp it out. Then it became empire-wide for a while until Constantine allowed Christianity to be lawful. That set up some new problems. But all down through history, the church has been under attack in one form or another. The Bible's always been criticized. You know, it doesn't agree with science. It doesn't agree with evolution. You know, it goes on and on and on about what's wrong with the Bible or the church. Or you have within the church, as we've seen, you have heretics within the church. You have persecution from the outside. Right now, we can see on the global stage persecution in a major way against Christianity. Satan does not let up. Make sense? How about this? Can anything good come from heresy? What, say it again, Bob. That's exactly right. 
you get a star for the day bump. So what, what happens is that we began having more and more of these heresies. And remember the handout that I gave you that listed all the different kinds, you know, uh, Arianism for, for one where Jesus was not quite God. You had God the Father, but then Jesus came a little bit afterwards, so he's not quite eternal. And then other, other heresies came along and said that Jesus was so divine that he really wasn't human. Okay? And then you have others that um, doceticism is from a Greek word, forget that part, but it comes from a word that means to seem. So the docetists said, well, Jesus just seemed to be God. Wasn't really God, but just seemed that way. So he had all kinds of heresies, but the church leaders were saying, would get together and say, what do we really believe? And why do we believe it? And thus they began to accumulate the canon. So that is one good thing that came from heresy. Another good thing that came from heresy was that it winnowed out the believers from the unbelievers. Okay? Any questions? All right. What are the implications of the Edict of Milan? First of all, who did it and when? Constantine. Constantine. Right. Okay. When? 313. Okay. All right. So I thought, surely they'll get that one. Okay. All right. Okay. All right. So, all right. He says, listen, this matter of who is Christ, who he is, his person, is fomenting trouble in my empire. So he has a political motivation as well as a theological motivation. His mother is a believer. Constantine himself appears to have been a believer, but there are dark parts of his life. He never relinquished the title of uh, Pontifus Maximus, which means the emperor, the spiritual head of state of the Roman Empire. He murdered some people. So it was interesting because at that particular time in church history, there was a strong belief that if there were certain sins that you did after baptism, that you would lose your salvation. It's noted that Constantine waited to be baptized until his deathbed. And I think it was probably for that very reason. little digression there. Okay, Edict of Milan says that the Roman Empire, or it says that Christianity is legal. It did not create, like some people mistakenly believe, it did not create Christianity as the religion of the empire. That didn't happen until 380 under Theodosius. Theodosius was the emperor. He himself was a believer, and he said, if it's good for me, it's good for everybody. And so he mandates everybody's going to be a Christian. Okay? It's interesting how the tables of history can turn. So from the point of, okay, well, let's come back. What are the implications of the Edict of Milan? you remember what I talked about? Right. And Constantine himself enjoyed religious leaders around him. He liked to talk about theology and those kinds of things, and they all and many, many of their emperors after him the same way. 
Now what happens is, as using Bob's words, from the church being underground, keeping a low profile, now it's in the courts of state. Now, if you are seeking power, remember what motivates the human race. If you're after power, get in the church, work your way up, become influential. Whether or not you're a believer, it's kind of incidental, just seek the power. So that's one of the negative implications of the Edict of Milan because now you have church and state closely bound together and for the next thousand years in Western civilization, church and power are linked together. Make sense? So what are you learning? Well, you think about what is it that you're really learning about history and how is it changing your understanding of where we are? Okay, let's keep going. Condition of the church after the Eucalon, as we were just saying, church power is now mixed with state political power. Lord Acton was a 19th century English uh, noble person, and he made the famous statement, you all heard it, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts absolutely. Is there anybody in here that kind of doubts that? Haven't we seen that in our own lives? Don't you see it at the office, for pity's sake? You know, they don't have absolute power, but they can make life miserable for you, right? You bet. Okay. But more correctly, it seems that power attracts corruptible people. Think about that the next time you vote. Sort of a corollary to that is, but isn't everybody corruptible? Not me. <laughs> and pay me enough and I'll keep saying that. <laughs> Yes, we all are, aren't we? It just depends. Like, you know, sometimes you'll see it on in movies, you know. Everybody has their price. May not be money, may be power, but and that's why when you see a really principled leader man or woman, man, just be thankful. Okay? They have to they have to with withstand stuff we don't know about. Okay? All right, so we'll move on. So just as the Roman Empire became west and east, Rome and Constantinople, so also the church, even though it was Catholic, meaning universal, we're not talking about Roman Catholic here, although we have the seeds in place, it's growing. We'll see some more of that this evening. The church then began to be in two parts also, and it is to this day. And you have Eastern Greek Orthodox, and you have various other Eastern kind. And the culture influences the way they think, the way they, in, way we interpret the scriptures. Not necessarily saying it's bad. There'll probably be millions of Eastern peoples in heaven, and be thankful for it. Um, so, not a judgment, but just be aware of that. The Western church tended to be, use a fancy word here, grammatical literal. That is, when you read the scriptures, 
the words themselves have meaning. Whereas the Eastern church tended to be more allegorical. And many of the church fathers and leaders were, would vacillate back and forth. And so what am I, you know, what's an, what's an example? Origin was uh, one where you read the scriptures, you take what the surface meaning means, and then you start looking for deeper meaning. So in a simplistic example, every time wood would be mentioned in the Old Testament, it must be symbolic of the cross. Or if there was a river, it could mean the river of life, or maybe it was the Holy Spirit. The problem with allegorical kind of reading and interpretation is it starts leading you further and further away into kind of a mystical situation where your interpretation is as good as mine. And that's exactly what some of the things were that happened within our own church history. Okay. So, as, and as Ron was talking about earlier, New Testament canon was formed and was well in use in that 350 to 450 A.D. time frame. However, if we go down the street to the local Catholic church and pick up a copy of their Bible, you will see all of our books, 39, I'm getting this right, 39 Old Testament, 27 New, total of 66, and they will have additional apocryphal books in their Bible as well. Some of those are conveniently used to help with their theology, like purgatory. Okay, And we would say, mm, don't, we don't quite think so. Again, not casting stones, but I'm just saying, even yet today, 2014, you still have issues about what is the real scriptures. Without getting into it, because many, many books have been written and you can find them in your library. You can do a Google on these various things. But I wanted to talk about for just a minute to point out to you some of the significant councils that occurred and when they occurred. The very first one, which we've talked about uh, several times, occurred at Nicaea. All right. Now. Do you remember where Nicaea is? Map of Europe here. All right. You got France, or I'll do it for you. Okay. You got France. Well, you got England. Then you got the English Channel. Then you got France. Then you come across, and you have Germany, and you have Italy, and you keep going. You get over here to Greece, and you keep on going some more. And you've got Byzantium up, up here, which becomes what? Constantinople, which becomes Istanbul, okay? In 330, Constantine says, I'm moving the capital of the empire from Rome to Byzantium, and I need a name. And I'm sure somebody just happened to say, what about Constantinople? I'm glad you said it. That's Constantinople. All right. And so then that was in 330, and exactly 1,600 years later, Turkey changes the name to Istanbul. Okay, that's free. All right. So now, question was, Paul, where is Nicaea? 
We have island of Patmos out here where John's, you know, in a penal colony. Okay, and you've got the edge of Turkey right here, and you've got the seven cities that John writes to, and you got Smyrna and Ephesus, Philadelphia, and so on. Okay. Byzantium, Constantinople. You go down the road about 15, 20 miles, and you'll come to Nicaea. That's the town, little city there. And that's where Constantine said, let's all get over here and get together. 318 bishops from an all-over known empire congregate there. All expenses paid from wherever they had to come from. You had bishops from all over. You had them from Alexandria. Some had had their eyes gouged out. Some had had their bones and body broken in various kinds of torture. One came with unable to use his hands. During the Council of Nicaea, the one with one of the bishops with his eyes gouged out, uh, Constantine gave a gracious kiss on his cheek. And this was a huge turn, turnaround. You had three bishops from England. Okay? They came all the way across there. Okay. The issue at hand was, and the reason why Constantine convened this, which is rather interesting, it's sort of like the Supreme Court of the United States and the President of the United States telling all the churches to get together in Richmond and we're going to settle some theological matter. Doesn't that sound a little strange to you? Okay. Well, it certainly was strange to these folks because they had never had anybody showing any interest at the imperial level for Christianity other than let's kill you. Okay. So um, the problem was large part of Christianity believed that Jesus was not quite God, our Savior, but not quite God. And you had another part that said, no, Jesus Christ and God the Father are the same of the same essence, of the same being. They are both eternal. Athanasius White hat, Arius, black hat. Got it? And wherever you went in the empire, somebody was going to strike up an argument about this. And Constantine said, I don't like this. I want peace. All right? So he convenes it, and the upshot was the Nicene Creed that we read together, and it said that Jesus Christ is fully deity. Let me quibble with you just a little. It's not quibbling. It's important. You may not see it that way, but that's okay. You hear people run around using the word divine and deity. Jesus is divine. It kind of bothers me. It's like divine pie and ice cream. It, it just doesn't carry the depth of meaning that deity does. Does it sort of resonate that way with you? Anyway, so just think about it. All right. Now, human nature and human events and forces being what they are 
can you predict what's going to happen? Athanasius carries the day. Nicene Creed gets established. Jesus Christ and God the Father are eternal the same. Now the pendulum swings and we have Jesus being God, but not quite what? Human. And that's what happened next. Because at the, con- at the Council of Constantinople in 381, they had to wrestle with that decision. And they said, you know what? He's both God and man. So those were two huge statements. Then the next question was, well, you said, I was talking about the docetus a minute ago that they said, well, Jesus just seemed to be God, just seemed to be human being. They said, no, he was a unified person. Listen, some of these people back then were thinking that Jesus was just a phantom. He existed, but he was a phantom. Others said, no, he was just a good human being, Ron, that at the baptism, God came upon him He lived a moral life, got hung on a cross, but at the moment when you say he died, God left. Okay? So you had these various beliefs. But at the Council of Ephesus in 431, they said he is one human being, God and man together. And then Council of Chalcedon was also saying he is human and deity in one person. Some said, well, we won't belabor it. Does that make sense? Give you some appreciation for things that got hammered out back then. Who was calling the council? Well, Constantine called, called the first one. Others, the churches were involved with uh, imperial blessing because... Uh, Legal authorities don't like problems in, among the people. Okay, keep on going. Church councils and some of the important church fathers. We're going to run through this quickly. Irenaeus was from Smyrna. That should ring a bell. One of the churches that, that uh, John wrote to. And Gnosticism, we talked about that a little bit. That was a heresy. Well, this is, this is another flavor. Gnosticism said, spiritual things are what is good. That's the fullness, the pleroma, okay? But material things, including your body, our body, is evil. It's bad. And so what happened was that there was this God figure that was up here removed from the universe. And through various emanations of lesser gods, they finally got around to creating this material stuff that we just have to tolerate. Jesus was one of these lesser gods that was involved. For the Gnostics, they didn't particularly have a problem with the idea of the virgin birth. Their problem was that 
to think that this God could become a human being was revolting to them. Okay, so Irenaeus was a, was a polemicist. Polemicists are people that fight heresy within the church. He went after Gnosticism in a big way and helped defeat it. Tertullian was from Carthage. Where's Carthage? Africa. All right. He was trained as a lawyer. He was a valiant apologist. He had a fiery personality, and error really set him off. And so he wrote and was valiant for the truth. Um, He's the man that said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Now, here we mentioned Origen earlier. Origen was a tremendous textual scholar. Imagine writing over 6,000 scrolls in your lifetime. Now, we're not talking about, you know, your word processor and, you know, your... uh, copier and all of that. We're talking about guy with a quill, all right, where you have to make your own ink and so on. 6,000. It's amazing. Was a very, all right, uh, other good stuff. Jerome came along. He lived in France. He moved to Syria and Antioch. You remember where that is? Pretend here's the Mediterranean Sea. Here's Israel. Um, you've got um, you've got Jerusalem about right here. You've got the Dead Sea going going down, and Antioch is up about right here. Okay, and Antioch was one of the big four centers for Christianity. Jerome moved there. He had lived lived in France went through a various number of, of different kinds of heresies and Greek philosophy and other kinds of things, ended up in Syria and Antioch. He was a language scholar. He translated the New Testament and the Old Testament into, what, into the Latin language, what we know of as the Latin Vulgate. And up until about the last hundred years or so, the Latin Vulgate was still the official Roman Catholic Bible. That's how long that work of his lasted. Tremendous man. Augustine, of course, huge, huge church father, 354 to 430. His mother was a believer, prayed incessantly for him. Probably the most significant of the ancient church fathers, he was the first Christian to write a spiritual biography. Prolific writer and apologist. Okay, there's lots of things flooding my mind right now, but we need to press on. Let's talk about Pope Leo for just a minute. You said, Pope Leo, you've probably lived all your life, Ron, without hearing about Pope Leo. Okay, but we need to talk about him for just a second because... The papacy began to grow significantly under him, and you would like to know why, right? Sure you would. Okay. All right. Here's, here's the map. There's Antioch. We were just talking about that. 
There's Jerusalem down there. Rome, Rome is over here. Now, we've said before, see this blue line that goes here? That's the outline of the then known Roman Empire. I thought about this on the way over, a little digression here, driving over tonight. We've said that the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, was really essential for establishing an opportunity for the gospel to, to go. In American jurisprudence, we look to a lot of the Roman law. We also look to a lot of the Old Testament Jewish law as well. And Dave could tell us lots about that. But one of the interesting things that you don't often hear about is, where did our jury system come from? Because remember, the Romans were serious about obedience to the law, and you had magistrates and emperors, and they set what the law was and made the decisions. They're the judge and jury. But in our system, we have juries as well. Know where that came from? The British, yes, had it. But in turn, where had they gotten it? Put your mind at ease just out of curiosity. It came from the Vikings. Now, just imagine you've got this rough and ready crowd and somebody's done something in the community that they don't like. And so there's a group of this particular person's peers that are probably sitting around the campfire or in the meeting house and saying, well, I don't know about old floor, you know, and saying they chew it around for a while and make a decision. So juries came from the Vikings incorporated in our system. A lot to be thankful for about that. All right, but here we go. Outside of this blue line, you are outside of the empire, and this is no man's land out here. Now, keep in mind, we're talking about Pope Leo. Here we go. What happens? We are now into the 400s, and Emperor Valentinian, in 445, issues an, an edict and says that Leo, the bishop of Rome from, for 21 years, is now the supreme spiritual authority in the West. Now, Leo uses his position for good to establish order and against heresies. He was very zealous for the church. Again, we're not talking about Roman Catholicism, papacy as we know it today. This is early, early, early. But he is zealous for the church. And just keep in mind that in every good thing, there are the seeds of evil because we are sinful people. So just keep that in mind. All right. Now, in 450 or so, you have coming from the east this malevolent power known as the Huns. We make jokes about Attila the Hun, okay? It was no joke to these people. They were called barbarians because they did not speak Latin or Greek. Let's go back just a second. 
see this. You have Italy right here, and here's France, and here's this whole area up here, a large part of which we would call Germany today. And you had Eastern Germany and Western Germany. You had Vandals and Goths and Visigoths peoples up here, and we're going to talk about them some more in just a minute because it's important what happens. So here's Leo in Rome. Coming from the east is Attila. And havoc is being wreaked across the then known world. He was called the scourge of God by the Western people. So if you want to get an idea of what's going on here, coming out of Eurasia over here, these vast plains, you had these hordes of Mongol horse riders that loved living outside. They'd put a piece of raw meat on the back of their horse for a saddle and ride it all day and then eat it raw or maybe just barely cook for dinner that night. They loved archery. They could shoot two arrows at a time in various directions, and they were uncanny with their skill. And we're talking about thousands of them coming. And we have no comprehension of this. I mean, at this particular point, the Roman army is in various kind legions are in various kinds of disarray. The emperor has a couple of legions still over here in England, and he calls them to come home. Attila comes. He sweeps into France, conquers part of that, but then he starts heading for Rome. Now what happens? Attila reigned from 434 to 453, and he evades from the east. The Goths, flee in fear into the empire across the Danube River. What happens is this area in here, you have this, the, the Danube River comes down through here. They, the people and peoples in Germany, hear of the Mongol horde coming. Now, this is years in development. This doesn't happen just overnight. These guys are coming. So what happens is a, we estimate about a quarter of a million of these barbarians here, meaning they can't speak Latin or Greek, not that they're uneducated, but they come pouring across the empire into northern part of, of the empire. Another thing that happens is that the people in Rome flee to the northeast to some swampy islands. You didn't realize you are going to learn so much good stuff. They go right here. In this area right here, there are all kinds of little islands, and it's marshy. And the reason they went there is they said, these guys are on horseback. And if we get somewhere where their horses can't operate very well, it may help us. So after they got there and stayed there for a while, they said, you know, this is kind of a neat place. And they built what we know of today as Venice. It's right there. So that's the legacy of, of what happened there. Don't lose track of Leo. We're going to get back to him. So 
Attila comes down here, and as he starts approaching, Rome's about right here. As he starts approaching down here, Leo gathers up his robes and some of his immediate followers, people there in the church, and they go out to meet this man in charge of thousands of warriors bent on destroying Rome and Italy and all of the West, Spain, France, so on. Attila descends on Rome in 452. Leo meets him outside the city and convinces him to leave. Can you imagine the courage of that? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. But Leo said, please do not destroy this city. And Attila listened, considered it, and for whatever reason, turned around and left. Now, that was in four. That was in 452. There's also another other side that I'd be remiss if I didn't mention it to you. Attila's troops were becoming ill with various kinds of disease. They were also running out of food. Attila may have decided to count the cost of all this and said, you know, it's not quite worth it. But who knows? Whatever the reason was, he left. Now, can you imagine? You have a city of thousands of people quivering, knowing that this was about to descend on you and all the horrors of war that you can imagine were about ready to happen to you. And this man, Leo, goes out there and turns this thing around. Pretty heroic. Okay. Now, this is in 452. No sooner does that get done than something else happens guy that you've never heard of probably unless you've said a lot of little detail of ancient history. guy by the name of Gasseric and the Vandals come to Rome three years later. Where did they come from? They came out of North Africa with the Vandals who had migrated from Gaul and Spain. Carthage is the breadbasket of the Roman Empire. They're growing tons of wheat down there, loaded up on ships, and, and go across the Mediterranean up to Rome. Gaiseric com, comes from Carthage, cuts off, the, cuts off the, the bread supply, and he turns around, goes around, starts to invade, or start invading up through France and across, down, in, down into Italy, gets to Rome, and Leo meets him and convinces him not to burn and pillage the city of Rome. But Gaiseric, unlike Attilo, said, well, I didn't come all this way just for nothing. So here's the deal, Leo. You're going to give us two weeks to pillage Rome. We're not going to burn it, but we're going to take whatever we want for two weeks, and then we'll leave town. Deal? Leo said, I guess so. All right, so that's what happened there. Now, as a result of those two things, now you would say, well, gee, you know, they came in and took all this, took all this stuff. Well, remember, he left them alive, which was a whole lot to be said in that day, that day and time. So for these two events of turning back Attila, turning back Gaiseric and his thousands of, 
of warriors. Leo then is looked at upon as the savior of Rome. He is the bishop of Rome. Valentinian has said he is the spiritual authority of the West. And so all of those are good things. But remember my comment earlier that in the seeds of every good thing, there is evil. So now you have the rise of the bishop of Rome. He liked to call himself Papus, which means Papa in Latin. You don't have to go very far from Papus to Pope. All right. So here we go. Questions. Make sense? Yes. Any bribes? Not that we know of. I, I can just imagine Attila loved riding on horses. These people would ride horses all day long. Okay. He's out there, and you can just see this army of mounted warriors, quills and or arrows and bows and swords in hand, ready to murder you. Attila's in front. Here comes Leo with a small delegation. By comparison, it would have to be small, even if he came with a hundred, okay, and comes out and parleys with Attila. Something to think about. Similar, similar time to courage dealing with Gesseric as well. Okay, any other questions? We'll move on. The early church was also mission-oriented. And another name that you probably never, never heard of is Ophelus. Ophelus lived these years, 311 to 383. He's an Arian Christian. Let's keep in mind that God even uses heresies and wicked people to accomplish good things. But Ophelus was fervent. And he was a missionary to the Goths of the Eastern Germanic peoples. Tacitus, the Roman, one of the Roman uh, historians said, the thing about the Goths and the Germans was they were three characteristics. They were drinkers, they were gamblers, and they loved war. <laughs> okay. Now, those would be, you know, we would probably say, well, that's kind of a left-handed compliment, you know, that, you know. But one of the complimentary things that he said about them was that the German men really respected their wives. And that was pretty unusual at that point in, in human history. But so here you have these warlike people. And Ophelus decides to be a missionary to them. And I just called him the first Wycliffe translator. Okay. Because what did he do was he went and lived among these people. They had no written language, listens to their words, creates an alphabet, creates a language, and then translates the scriptures into their language for them. Now, you'll also note a little humorously, he didn't translate the Old Testament books of Kings and Samuel. Any idea why? <laughs> Too many wars in the in the Old Testament. And he said to himself, the last thing this crowd needs is listening to and reading about more wars. I've got enough trouble just trying to keep them calm. <laughs> All right. I call him a Wycliffe translator. Now, you realize 
Wycliffe himself lived about a thousand years after this. I'm just using that term to describe what he did. He is certainly not the only one. And keep in mind that you have Christian women involved here whose lives we will never know about as well. But someday in eternity, we're going to hear about all the things that they too did. Ah, I remember this. Theodoric the Great was a Gothic king, and this is his mausoleum in Ravenna, Italy. He died in 526. If you've ever been there or want to go there, you can see it. So these are real people in real time. And who knows what his spiritual state may have been as a result of Ophelos or other unknown Christian men and women that were in his life or in his court. So this concludes a this particular week. I hope you're getting a sense that God is at work historically in people's lives and that things are not always neat and clean and tidy like we would like them to be, but that God works through this huge tapestry that we know of as church history. And just wanted to kind of wrap up on the, on the thought that somebody shared the gospel with you. Now, you may have had that moment of salvation alone, reading a tract or the word or reflecting on what they told you, but somebody communicated something to you. And that, in turn, links back to somebody telling them and somebody telling them. And it goes all the way back through these people that we're hearing about. You have a sense of the mystical but majesty of that? In my own, in my own life, you know, um, my parents were not believers when I was little. But they had had, my mother had quite a bit of, of church activity and experience, my father not. But it bothered both of them. And we would go to church and every Sunday morning go off to the Methodist church in the community and um, hear boring sermons that didn't amount to anything that I could tell. I can still remember this old country church. And I'd sit in a pew and I'd lean my head back on the back of the pew because the roof was a barrel roof. And it was made out of individual slats of wood about three inches wide. And so I'd start over on the right and, and try to count. How many, but then you'd lose your place because, you know, some of the wood would blend together. And you say, was that 97 or, you know, oh, darn. So, you know, you start and try to get, that tells you what I do on Sunday morning. Okay. But one of the things that bothered my parents was this person, Jesus Christ, good man, perfect man. It bothered them why a perfect man would have to die. Didn't make sense. So my mother started listening to the radio and found this program called Back to the Bible Broadcast. All right? And she began listening and she thought that guy was a crackpot. 
Okay. But then she'd listen, and she, every, every morning she's washing dishes, and she'd have it on. I still remember that old radio. And all of a sudden, or gradually, but one day came where the Spirit of God moved into her life and said, you know what? The reason he died was for your sins. And my mother became a believer in the kitchen and in turn, you know, influenced me and then my dad, my brother. Only point being, little personal testimony, but the point being is that we all have heard the gospel in one form or another that has been communicated by person to person to person. A lot to be thankful for.